Hi there, and welcome to another edition of Sip Sip Hooray, the podcast for people who love their wine and want to know more about it and the fascinating people who make it. Some folks believe a good wine sings in the glass, and our guest today just may be one of them. He is Ted Glennon, owner and winemaker at Vocal Vineyards, a man passionate about expressive wines and infectious grooves. When he's not making wine, Ted can often be found spinning vinyl as DJ Soignier. We are eager to get to know Ted better and of his wine as well. We are the two Marys who like to eat, drink, and be merry. I'm Mary Babbitt. And I'm Mary Orlin. Ted Glennon's career has been both Venice and vocal. He combines his music passion with wine, but he started in the hospitality business at age 14 in restaurants, um, starting up with being a dishwasher, working his way up to front of the house and sommelier and general manager. He eventually landed in the Monterey Bay area and Santa Cruz Mountains, where he established vocal vineyards. With this endeavor, Ted says a lot about this mountainous wine region. And he is giving voice to the historic and possibly forgotten vineyards here and the unsung grape varieties. Ted, welcome to Sip Sip Hooray. Thank you for having me. Good morning. We're happy to get to know you better today, Ted. And I knew I would like you right away when I listened to some of your playlists. They're really funky. Really, like, um, you got to move your body when you're listening to them, and that's really fun. Yeah, it's definitely like, you know, you definitely want people to get up and dance. (laughs) Absolutely. So we'll talk about your music today, but of course, we also want to hear your wine story. So tell us how you got started down the path of wine. Yeah, I've had a very uh, complicated and exciting uh, career, and when we do these retrospectives, it makes you tired. Um, (laughs) So, yeah, I, I grew up in the eastern Sierra Nevadas near the Mojave Desert. I first worked as a dishwasher and a cook in a steakhouse uh, all through high school and transitioned to the front of the house uh, in college and found wine and really didn't know at that time how much it would play in my life. Um, through, I spent uh, many years in Los Angeles and then San Diego where I worked at the Hotel Del Coronado. And then I moved to Monterey to open a restaurant called 1833 in 2011. At that time... I was really excited about what was going on in California and especially what was happening from Santa Rita Hills to Santa Cruz Mountains. This is also a time uh, where people were still um, wanted to kind of bash on California, um, you know, say that the wines weren't that great. And we we make the best tasting wines in the world here. It's just uh, it's like hating on the prom queen. (laughs) Um, So I'm sixth generation of my family in California, mostly of Basque and Irish descent. And every generation of my family has been in service of the people of this great state. Fire, police, uh, education, hoteliers, um, including myself. And I see that. I see the wines that we are producing, as well as the other producers I work with, as part of that, trying to um, bring a spotlight to some of the greater places, greater things going on in our wonderful state. Um, the Monterey, the greater Monterey Bay region. So when we talk about wine appellations, we often have a micro focus. Uh, a great example of this is like the Santa Lucia Highlands. And you can't really talk about this place without talking about the 
deep bay in the Monter in Monterey, right? It's 20 miles to the west. It's one of the five deepest sea points on Earth. And you can't talk you can't talk about that Paso Robles having 100 degree you know days with 50 degree diurnal because this was what creates the climate. And so when we talk about this region. The Santa Cruz Mountains that sit on the northern crest of the windy, cold Monterey Bay is part of this really more macro climate going on. The whole place has never been represented well. Uh, no one's ever hired some MS to make it a brand like Santa Barbara. And part of that is because for the Santa Cruz Mountains, almost everything is still independently owned, single, driven, single vineyard driven and fascinating. And then in the greater region, we're known for you know having great acidity and elegance in the wines. And we have to remember that Right now we're in this like truly like incredible golden age of wine making and wine drinking. But for a very long time, the national palate, unfortunately, has been driven by uh, alcohol, sweetness, and wood, right? And that's definitely not where we come from or what we do. Now the Santa Cruz Mountains themselves, to speak about that for a moment, is the third appellation in California's history. It's legally defined as above the fog line. There's an elevation limit on the interior and on the coast. And you could really subdivide it almost into four places. But one thing to really think about for this place is it's the only appellation in the world that produces Grand Cru, high quality Cabernet, Chardonnay, and Pinot Noir. The only one. And that is because of our incredible elevation, our incredible geology, and our variation of climate. Um, and by the way, if you want to contradict me, France isn't an appellation. So, <laughs> you know, because, and, and really let's, let's talk about that because on our coast mm -hmm. we have we're in some of the coldest parts of the Pacific. The Monterey Bay is the one of the five deepest sea points on Earth. This is the true cold upwelling of water. They call it the big refrigerator, right? Yeah. So, you know, for a generation, and even when I was a young sommelier, Sonoma producers would lie to you. This is the only upwelling of cold water on the West Coast. Total lies. <laughs> it's not even close to what happens there. Um, so talk about our talk about how the region came to be um, and you'll have to get me to talk about myself because I'm going to try to avoid it. But the, uh, our, region, our region is underpinned by three important factors. Mm -hmm. Everything is within 20 to 30 miles of the artery of the San Andreas fault line. You know, if you go back to high school and uh, plate tectonics, that happens. That, that epicenter is right here. And I hope you're not nervous hearing that. Nobody gets out of bed if it's a four-point earthquake. It's, it's like make coffee. <laughs> um, so we have incredible complex geology and also the, these our mountain ranges here are really like the Santa Cruz mountains pushed out of the ocean during that incident and so it's a mountain range it's not a valle like Napa and so you have this really interesting variation of climate um, but before you go on let me just um, interject that we are actually sitting here with Ted in Saratoga which is one of the towns along the Santa Cruz Mountains. We are right in the heart of the Appalachian here. And um, so it's a great place to talk about what you love about the wines of this region and why, why do you think it is that Santa Cruz Mountain wines don't get the recognition, why they are unsung? Yeah, I think that everyone's going to discover these wines. I think that our, um, so we have this wonderful geology and exposure for vineyards. We sit in the latitude equivalent of Sicily. And people talk about latitude, right? All it really means is sunshine and UV concentration. And so in your mind, hold the idea of the Mediterranean, right, mm -hmm. in Sicily. We all have this idea of what Sicily, it's this sun-soaked rock between Italy and Africa. Hot, fun, right? Great fishing. We have, because of the Monterey Bay affecting everything in the region, we have 
structure that you would find in Europe, like in Burgundy. And then we have these really complex, uh, this complex geology that's created by the Faltenstein. So that sounds like an amazing place to make wine, right? Great pleasure from ripeness. And when we get to the Cabernet, Santa Cruz Cabernet is classically described as in the nose. You think you're in Europe, but on the palate, you cannot de deny being in California and the sunshine and the pleasure in, in the fruit. Um, I have no problem in mixing it up with other Appalachians or other countries. You know, if you haven't discovered the wines from this region, specifically Santa Cruz, but also mm -hmm. the greater Monterey area and San Benito, you're really missing out. We, this is, you know, the, you're going to have Chardonnays that will taste like Burgundy, except Burgundy will never have this pleasure in the fruit because mm -hmm. they don't have this sunshine. Mm -hmm. And you're going to taste incredible minerality, structure, acidity. This is real terroir that our, our cousins in Sonoma and Santa Barbara would kill for. And the other thing that's really important about getting to know this area is because we are all transfixed around that deep underwater canyon, while every, because global warming is always a question. So while things get hotter, we typically get cooler. And that's not always true every year, but we are greatly affected. Remember high school physics, all that hot air in the Central Valley rises like a piston, vacuum brings all this cold air in. So like when it's 100 degrees in Fresno, it'll be like 68 degrees on the coast. And this is really dramatic. When we talk about growing wine, making wine, mm -hmm. especially in the year it comes, very, very important. Sure. So you are really vocal about this region yeah. and how great it is and how great the wines are. But um, so tell us why the name Vocal Vineyards. Is it because of this and um, really how you got your label started? Sure. So I had, uh, when I opened that restaurant in Monterey, the first appointment I took was with a young man named Ian Brand. And Ian at the time was just getting somebody to pay attention to him. And I thought that the wines were really remarkable. Um, and a couple years later, uh, we're living a few blocks from each other in Salinas. Um, both our wives at the time are pregnant. And we're hanging out a lot in the garage. And Ian's the one who introduced me to, to the Lilo Vineyard in the Santa Cruz Mountains. And was like, I know you want to do this. And, and jump in, let's go. And so the first thing we did was a little bit of Pinot Noir. And Ian and I worked together as partners uh, up until 2018, and then I took it on from there. Um, the uh, uh, These wines are, are uh, would you like to go into Pinot Noir and Santa Cruz Mountains for a moment? Well, wait, wait, wait. We never got sorry. to hear yeah. why Vocal Vineyards. Yes. Oh, I'm sorry. So Vocal, <laughs> so I didn't want to do, you know, with great intention, didn't want this story to be another, like, this is a family winery thing, or this is somebody's name i really believe that rule of marketing where never put your name on things right. you know ask ask gary farrell how he feels about that <laughs> um and so everything is our copyright laws in america are goofy as hell so everything has been copyrighted, right like the spanish word for grandma is under trademark so it was hard to find something and i really wanted something that was like simple and classic and could have depth of meaning i also like uh while we make serious products, kind of having some tongue in cheek if you get to know me. And so, you know, Vocal Vineyards is a play on that cliche of let the vineyard speak. Where is it speaking under all that cosmetic winemaking you're doing, right? But every brand rep, I feel like when I was in my uh, mid-20s, when I was a young sommelier, would come in and be like, this is because of the voice of the vineyard. The voice of the vineyard is these new barrels and this like extract and this, you know, uh, cold soak. Um, so there, there's a bit of an attitude in that. Um, on the bottles, not all of them, but many of them, there's an umlaut over the O. And this is purely a joke. Uh, 
it's a reference. It's just like Spinal Tap, right? And, you know, there are things, um, like in filmmaking, there's uh, sometimes the most beautiful things come out of the necessity of what you have, right? So can't find, you know, we're, we're going through names, we're going through names, we can't find something that's going to make sense that we both like. I want something simple. Ian wants something more complex. And I remember we're in the cellar one day, and I was like, how about vocal? It's not taken. And also, we'll get to another thing there. And he's like, I don't know, I don't know. So I drew an umlaut over the O. What about that? What do you think? He's like, fine, fine, fine. Because <laughs> he drew in the umlaut? So two years later, because from the beginning, vocal's been about elevage of these, of these wines, about aging. That's what French term means, aging. So aging the wines extra before release and really giving them what they can be. Like today, we're going to taste 2018. Um, so two years later... We're printing the bottles. We're getting everything ready to go for release of the first wines. And Ian's like, everything we've done has really surpassed my expectations. I'm really blown away by this. Um, we should take the umlaut off. And for two days, I just text quotes from Spinal Tap. <laughs> and I won. But I love that. It was a, if you haven't seen Spinal Tap, go watch it. You've if you have one it. of our bottles, they're like two eyes staring at you. Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's important not reference. to take yourself seriously, right? Like take yourself seriously, you know, have a good amount of healthy ego and believe in yourself, but you know, have some fun along the way too. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, and then it's fun. Cause like when the wines went to New York, the New Yorkers who all believe they're smarter than everybody else, uh, start calling it vocal, whatever, <laughs> right? Like whatever. Um, so that's but, how, that's how we got to, I so love vocal that. vineyards and, and, the story, you know, today we're talking about the Santa Cruz Mountains, but um, the idea for Vocal, and it's happening now, is really talking about that greater region. And so I, I make wine from the San Jose Highlands, Arroyo Seco, Carmel Valley, San Benito. These are all these different, like, important areas under the same macroclimate and macrogeological incident. Um, and uh, it's, it's fascinating, and it's fun, and, and it's the best. So I'm curious, you are the owner winemaker at Vocal Vineyards, not Vocal. And um, tell me what that means. So you source your grapes from different places and how, how much is it, Ted, hands-on, 24-7? Like, are you picking? Are you stomping? What, how, how much of this is a one-man band operation or how big is it? Life's a collaboration, not yeah. a competition, right? And I right. think people forget that quite mm-hmm. a bit. And so I, I prefer the term wine producer, over winemaker. And part of that is kind of what happened in restaurants too, right? Who's the chef? The guy who's never here or Hmm. everybody's a chef, right? I was in, uh, I was part of that tradition of call everybody a chef and they're the chef of their station. Um, You know, the wineries remind me a lot of the restaurants, a lot of the kitchens, a lot of the stuff that I worked with. And, and uh, it's always a collaborative thing for my own wines. I spend more time with the growers. Um, So, the intention here is not to ever own my own facility, not to ever have my, well, maybe I'll buy a vineyard, although everybody tells you not to. But, um, you know, this is a this is a, a mindset and a approach that is similar to Burgundy, similar to Piedmont, similar to a lot of places where you can have really outstanding producers that source fruit from key killer vineyards year in, year out. And everywhere I work is about specific blocks. It might be these rows, it might be this hillside might be this place and I take what comes from those places so my production varies quite dramatically um, especially with these drought drought rain rain drought 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 rain drought drought that we're going through um, so I am uh, 
really blessed to have worked with first Ian and his crew, and now today I make my wines at Russell Joyce's estate in Royal Seco. And he's extraordinary to work with. He's a, a very old friend as yeah, well. We, we've, um, we know him too. We have podcast episodes with both Ian and Russell, oh, wonderful. separate ones. So Incredible yeah. folks. And I had come here and, uh, you know, I had met Russell, I think, when he was 21, when I was still in San Diego. And uh, we've worked together for the last, uh, since 2018. So it's been really, really exciting. Um, my work is more about making sure that the fruit gets to the door perfectly, um, that I have a conversation. And, and at this point, you know, when you're working with somebody for four years, it's easier. But my vessels, the plan, everything is there. We're ready to go and then get the fruit to the door perfectly. Sort it if we're doing that. Stomp on if we're doing that. You know, get it going. Come back every morning I can and, and punch down. But the unique thing that happened to me that didn't happen to Russell or Ian is that in that time where I worked harvest in Barbaresco in 2012, I started making wine in 2013 with Ian. And then I'm like, I'm getting out of restaurants. I still wind up doing Quince and Rose Rebel in Las Vegas, but I eventually am looking for a job so I can stay in Monterey. I have a young family. How do I keep working? Um, and I wind up taking a job with an importer of wine and spirits. And that goes from learning to be a salesperson in San Francisco to again, unfortunately, becoming the GM and having a sales team and then having 14 states and then burning out and quitting. Wow. And then eventually being like, I, I got to a point where I said to myself, I understand this model. I understand, you know, how this works. And the import portfolio is, pardon me, is one person working on dozens of brands. Um, the portfolio I was with had over 100. That's how do you keep it all straight? You don't. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, there's 40 that are doing well and 60 that are, right? And so the idea is that you go into a market and you're representing all of these producers as one person with your with your distributor. And why not flip the model and do that for our local wines in the region? Um, and so when I'm not in harvest, I am immediately in the market to promote the wine that's in bottle. And I am lucky to have uh, Russell Joyce and his team to oversee the day-to-day. -day. And I kind of see that part. And this is what gets funny about the winemaker thing before mm -hmm. we move on to something else. The, um, oh, but you're not there all the time. You're not the winemaker. Well, you know, if I have somebody stir the sauce, I'm, is it my recipe? What happened here? <laughs> you know, and a lot of regions of the world have more understanding of, like, you know, what being a wine producer is. And, and hell, down here, we, we, we have this conversation because we're definitely more uh, up and coming, whereas I think in Napa, what I'm describing is just kind of established. So I spent years, uh, you know, doing all the stuff in the cellar, right? And today, because I wound up having this wine grad school of understanding distribution and sales, that, you know, that is my contribution, whereas Russell and his team are going to watch the wine all day in the cellar, and I'll be out in the market trying to get those things done. And, um, and all of those roles are important. Absolutely. Like you said, it is a collaboration. You can't do all of, I mean, a lot of small producers do do it all themselves, but, you know, it's usually you need a team. Yeah, and and, uh, and we're, we're, you know, it's still very much uh, Russell overseeing the whole seller and I'm overseeing sales. And we uh, sure try to make ourselves look more, look bigger than that and be super professional and super savvy and, and do the right thing. Um, but for me, it's uh, this time of the year is wild because I'm like, 
yeah, I can go to Texas. When are we picking Cabernet? Um, <laughs> but that's not anything new. I mean, our arrangement is really kind of an old school partnership of your brand, my brand, and we're going to work together on this. So I spend more time in the vineyards and, I, you know, sampling, working with growers. I don't mess with anything that's not organic. Farming is the minimum um, at this point. And, uh, you know, we prefer native yeast. I prefer used barrel. I prefer transparency and honesty. And to that, the wines, like when we get to Cabernet, it doesn't taste like other Cabernets. But if we did what makes other Cabernets taste like all Cabernets, you lose what's special in this region. Um, there are people in this area like Jeffrey Patterson that I admire because Pinot Noir doesn't explode in California until like 05 with the whole sideways thing, good or bad. Um, and you talk to people like him who for, you know, a good 20 years before that was trying to talk to people about Pinot Noir, you'll learn a lot about where we're going. And even today, Santa Cruz yeah. Mountains does not fit the commercial category of Pinot Noir well, out there in and, broader California. And you have brought us a bottle of your Pinot to yeah. taste. So let's um, try it and talk about it. So this wine is from the Lilo Vineyard. It sits above Aptos um, near Fern Flat Road. It's 800 to 1,100 feet in elevation. It's a, saw, it's a south-facing half uh, bowl of sandy loam. It is, these are 30-year-old vines descended from that basket of the Santa Cruz Mountain Selections. And when we taste this wine, on the palate, the structure, the svelte red fruit character, it absolutely reminds you of those wonderful uh, regions in Burgundy, like Chambol. You know, it's elegant, but it has this great ribbon of tannin. Like, this is a uh, wine that you think is delicate, but is got so much stuff to sure. it. Mm -hmm. It looks delicate in the glass. and It's not a super dark Pinot, and I think there's so many super dark Pinots out there, and it's nice to see that this is, you know, very light in color, but it's not light on the palate. It's outstanding. It's <laughs> so tasty. This is, uh, so this site is always sunny, always windy, and it sits surrounded by the iconic Redwood Forest, and... Um, one thing we should spend some time talking about is when you uh, smell this glass, there is this, uh, and, every, and this is all personal, right? All mm -hmm. flavor, aroma, interpretation, unless it's barrel, is personal, right? Um, but to me, there's like a, a cedar bark, there's a cinnamon stick, there's an alpine character here, and that's the forest at play. You know, there's appellations in the world that have this other impact on the wine character. If you think of Kunawara, in Australia, they plant eucalyptus windbreaks, the wind blows sap on the vines, tastes like eucalyptus. Um, or Provence, they talk about lavender in bloom, winds up in the wine. Honestly, as a young sommelier, I thought all this was bullshit. Yeah. Um, but here we are, and the, and the windblown terroir. So what's fun here mm -hmm. is um, this tastes like nothing else in the world. Mm -mm. Like, it reminds you of Burgundy, but because the Redwood Forest tastes nothing like anything except this part of California, and mm -hmm. maybe like up near like where the Hirsch Vineyard is. I think that's something that's so cool about the Santa Cruz Mountains that you can taste it in the glass. It's and it's why we don't do well critically mm -hmm. because it doesn't it doesn't fit, right? Yeah. And so like critical application is to say like this is best of these things, right? Mm -hmm. the, the critical application is um, like the base human thing where you're presented with three things and you must pick your favorite. You don't have to. They can all be great that's for their true. own things, right? Mm -hmm. And that's at least what you yeah. should teach your children. But because we're so different, and I think in a way so amazingly singular in the flavors and styles here, the, the critical, not all, not everyone, you know, shout out to some folks out there who have done, done well by us, right. but it doesn't 
fit in what they're tasting. And I get that. Mm-hmm. If you're writing for a magazine or online or whatever, it's all the same, right? You're tasting maybe, you know, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds, if not thousands of Pinot Noirs. And then these come along and no idea to process what this is. And one of the reasons why we talk, why I spend a lot of time with everyone to talk about the forest influence, you know, this is hand harvested. Mm-hmm. This is, we're aiming for a native ferment. So you're being really careful not to disturb things. And as such, you're bringing into fermentation whatever else is on the berries. And there's a, and when I say like a forest debris, it's as imperceptible to your eye as yeast would be, sure. right? But it's there. Yeah. And, and it shows up. And, you know, all you need to say to my husband about this wine is cinnamon stick, and he's there. I mean. <laughs> yeah, and, and cinnamon stick can be like, um, you know, one of the, one of the things I didn't realize I got was a real comprehensive understanding of the wines of the world, right? And so when we go into making these wines, you know, first with Ian and now with Russell, I get to bring this, like, all those years of running wine programs and saying, like, this is like this is like that. Now, cinnamon stick oftentimes is, like, really expensive new barrel and, like, particular, you know, appellations in, in Cote de Nuit, and it's so cool, but here it's the forest at play. That's so interesting, it really, you know, and I hadn't really thought about it that way, and that's why this region doesn't get all the recognition as some of its um, sister areas in California. We're, we're, we're weird, I guess, in a way, <laughs> but I think that's a strength, you know? At least that's why I tell my daughters that silliness is a superpower. But in this sense, we're like, we're, we're distinctive because of the place. And I think that because this isn't a region that's, uh, dominated by big corporate uh, portfolios, um, you know, good or bad, uh, mm-hmm. you don't, you still have this like kind of um, reflection towards the place. Mm-hmm. Sure. Mm-hmm. I will and, also add that, you know, drinking Pinot Noir at 10 in the morning is not what your brain wants to do normally. You know, it's coffee time wait. for me. <laughs> but um, I, so I, I was just blown away from the very first sip. This is a delicious. Pinot Noir. It is. And I, I love this style. I, and I'm so glad you're making it this way. And you're giving voice to this type of Pinot Noir. Yeah, I, I'm transparent. I want, I want to aim for transparency in these sites to what's really going on there. And I'm also transparent about all of the people that help us produce this bottle of wine and thankful to that. Um, and in that sense, going back, we talked about earlier, you know, I'll describe myself as a wine producer because there's all these winemakers and seller and growers and everyone that helps you along the way to get there. But just like being like a restaurateur or a filmmaker or anything like that, where you're trying to pull in all these different places to your vision of what you're looking for. And there are times where you are going to fight like hell to make sure exactly what you want will happen. Mm-hmm. Because you can only you can only compromise concept and vision so many times. And so that really needs to be that driven thing. I know we're talking about preference of organic farming and preference of native yeast and preference of these wines that are really transparent to where they come from. And that's the voice behind Vocal. But it takes a huge concert of people to do that. But there needs to be one person with a vision that's driving that thing, you know, and saying yes or saying no. Well, I Um, think your background puts you uniquely positioned for this because I was thinking about the restaurant work, the um, sommelier stuff, the distribution work that you did, learning. So you've learned sort of what the consumer wants, 
what the best wines taste like, what the marketing piece of this whole business is. And so you're at this cool intersection of knowing what you want, knowing how to get what you want, and then what to do with it. And I love that. And to that point, I wanted to ask you about some of the creative ways you're helping to market your wine. Yeah, so um, there's a, a if you bar. Hear, and we think there's a, I'm going to say it's a woodpecker. There's if you hear a little, little that, 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 that. Welcome to the Santa Cruz Mountains or something out there. <laughs> uh, it's alive. So there's a place in San Francisco called High Trees, and it was started by a colleague of mine, uh, Michael Ireland. And the idea there was it was going to be all records. And he had encouraged me early on when it, when it, before it was opening in the fall of 15, like, come play your records. You know, I know you really like music, and it's always been a thing for you. And it's always been a thing for me since I was a kid. I mean, I'm a, you know, I'm in my teenage years in the early '90s, and just, just you know, from '91 to '94 is almost every single classic hip hop record. You have the grunge thing, you have the third wave of ska exploding in the East Bay, you have punk rock in LA, very serious. You have all these rockabilly punk rock. There's so much going on. Like you in the same month you have uh you know wu-tang operation ivy uh, pearl jam like there's so much music right and and i love music um and i have to say that i've been very serious about all my jobs through my career almost to a fault and when michael was opening high treason there was his encouragement from him to be like come and play records and and uh and we started to, okay, I'll come and, and play music and and I'll buy your wine and we'll pour it. And that was the beginning of this whole idea. And so for almost seven years, that's how I promoted the wines. Um, take over wine bars or restaurants and I'll play, uh, I'll play music and they pour the wine. And I have to be honest with you, as a restaurant professional, I really do not like, or hospitality professional, um, I really can't stand the talking people to death at the table and wine being like the most important thing. The most important thing are the two people who are out on a hot date, Aww. you know? And so I would rather play the funky records. You drink the wine and you have a great time and we're memorable. Um, trying to keep this PG. Uh, <laughs> then the, you know, the clink, clink, clink. Let me tell you about the vineyard. And, the and listen, I'll do that. Whatever we got to do. You know, to, to sell the wine, whatever environment is appropriate, I'll get suited up and, and do that. But my preference is to do something that is kind of the anti-wine dinner, which is uh, what DJ Soigner is all about, and play. And so people ask, what is that like? Um, well, and I started with a lot of like hip hop and punk rock and so on, which is where I come from. But today, it's a lot of like synth boogie. It's a lot of disco and funk. There's no way if you want to get into music... You don't find yourself just in awe of some of the funk and disco bands. These are some of the greatest musicians of all time. And um, um, so for everybody listening, you can also listen to Ted's playlist under the DJ Soigner on Spotify. And let's just get a little taste of some of this funky music. All 
that. I'm ready to dance. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so I, I, I love that because that's uh, Diamond Ortiz, who's from San Jose, which is, you know, just over there. Yeah. Um, and that would be, uh, I, you know, there's, I would call it like synth boogie or like lowrider funk, very California styled sound, um, kind of like Zap and Roger, you know, do wah diddy back in the day. Mm. Um, there's, you know, music like this is really wonderful because um, it makes you, you know, wine and music and food and the atmosphere, all these things should be all in the service of the people that are there enjoying themselves. Um, and it's been fun to really uh, drift into, like, there's a lot of prints and there's a lot of this kind of music and there's a lot of nostalgic stuff. There's, I play a lot of samples of things that we love. I will, you know, no one ever needs to hear Eminem's lyrics again, but we can play the original, uh, we can play the original samples and you get the nostalgic hit and it's great. So everything I'm doing is to compliment your evening when you're there. Um, and then it's, it's also kind of like being in the bar, being in the kitchen where it's like, okay, we can do this whole thing and I don't talk to anybody. Uh, <laughs> Well, but, how do you um, stay? How do you stay current? How do you stay? I mean, you're a dad now. Yeah. How do you keep up with the likes of Diamond Ortiz and well, others? You know, it, like anything, you can, uh, you know, the Instagram, uh, you can hijack um, algorithms, right? So, like, uh, for example, I spent an afternoon finding chiropractors on Instagram and started following all of them, and now I get all kinds of at-home advice to how to fix my back. <laughs> you, know, you plug into certain ecosystems and social media and like you're following independent record stores. You're starting to see where things are coming from, you know, like anything. And just like wine, I think music and wine are very similar in the sense that you should like what you like. And it doesn't matter if somebody doesn't. It's for your consumption. And if you like it, you like it. If you don't like it, you don't like it. And it's OK. Um, there is, of course, groups of people. You know, there was the early 2000s uh, Chardonnay mob, where if you didn't like big, rich Chardonnay, something's wrong with you. Today, you've got the Natty Bros, where if you don't like these funky, goofy wines, something's wrong with you. Avoid all of these groups, you know, <laughs> and just like what you like. Um, but with music, it's the same thing, you know. And so our intention with wine should be to make something that is delicious. Mm -hmm. Everything else should be, uh, you know, the next step to that, right? And so... You know, wine's delicious. Okay, we have this terroir, we have this stuff, this is old vine, all these other cool things. And the same thing with music. You should like it. It should make you feel good. And if you want to get into all the technical things later, you can. And to me, those two uh, focus points make a ton of sense in where those products wind up, right? So if we're taking over, if I'm taking over a wine bar and I'm playing a vinyl set that's a lot of funky music, I play a lot of different chapters. If it's quiet, I'm not going to be blasting people's eardrums. But, you know, I think I think wine makes you feel good. I think music makes you feel good. Um, wine makes also, me a better dancer, too. A, <laughs> I have to be honest, you know, if we can be a little uncouth for a moment, you know, when I see, like, a young sommelier who people are on a great date and they've ordered something and they come tableside and they're like, did you know that this was planted in, like, pink granite? Did you know that? Hey, hey, what are you doing? They're, they're trying to, to get down. Get out of the way. Right. You know? And it's the same. And I feel the same way about, like, the classic wine dinners where it's like, we're going to do a special event. It's going to be 40 people served at once. This restaurant can't even get eight plates out at once. It's good. And then, you know, if you're not here on time for this special event where you paid all this money, then somehow you're supposed to feel bad. And then right when you settle in four times, we're going to interrupt you rudely. And some guy who can't 
public speak is going to be speaking to you and who knows what else is going to go on and just so awkward and unhospitable and like all of my wine dinners were a flow like a regular reservation so we could focus on you and I think that's always been my attitude and like I said I have no problem with doing the clinky clinky wine dinner but I'd rather play some funky records listen to the drink the wine and have a great night well, yeah. I would think that would make the wine much more memorable, too, because you have, I, I know for me, it might not be this way for everybody, but um, I associate a lot of things with music. Of, and if I'm sipping a just delicious wine and hearing some groovy tunes, every time I hear that song, I'm going to think of your wine. You know, it originally started with, like, uh, if you, I would post the playlists on Spotify the night I was doing the event, and the idea was, if you can't join us, then, you know, press shuffle, open a bottle of our wine, and enjoy yourself. Um, I have, we'll talk about vinyl for a second. Um, there is nothing that sounds better than a perfectly pressed vinyl record at 45 RPM from a great master. As I've been, in the last couple of years, been hired as a DJ. Weird. Great. But, uh, so, not really the intention, but awesome. I have a collection of, of digital files I bring along on my laptop. So I've got some extra stuff just in case. And nothing sounds as good as a really perfectly pressed vinyl record at 45 RPM. Now, this is the most sold media in the world for many years. And so there are a lot of bad ones too. But really, really remarkable to do that. That's carrying a lot of stuff with you. In the summer, it's stressful as all get out. But it's pretty awesome. The other fun thing I would say that I've noticed is, um, you know, if I'm playing at like High Treason in San Francisco or the Dudley Market in Venice Beach or Tabula Rasa in Hollywood, then it's I'm just playing what I'm, what I'm playing and there's no requests. But if it's, you know, an event where someone's hired me to be there, the, it's interesting. This happened recently where someone will come and ask you for something and because it's mostly vinyl, I mean, 95% even at those events is all from my record collection. Uh, you know, I can't match a request. And so I do the same thing I did as a sommelier in a restaurant. I'm like, well, what do you feel like? What do you like? What's your, what song oh. are you thinking? <laughs> Let me go find something that will hit you in Whoops. that same way. It's the same thing we do if it's like, I love XX Syrah. Well, we don't have that, but you know, I know that wine. This is what I recommend. Make them happy. Yeah, this will scratch uh, that itch. Yeah. You know, and the other thing there before we get into Cabernet would be uh, Soigne. So I'm somebody who always eschews terms that are hard to pronounce or things that are weird. And But that's a term. Soigne is an old French term. And, it, and it, it's another one of those wonderful words in uh, European languages that doesn't have a real translation. It has a feeling to it. Uh, Allons-y is another term in French where... It could mean let's go. It could mean charge. It's really this energetic uh, word, uh, allora, in Italian, almost a spoken pause or a uh, comma. Um, I think those words are fascinating. Swanee is like that too. Swanee really doesn't have a true definition. But what it means is it means that like extra nice, extra care, really dialed. You know, it's that, it's that fresh haircut. It's that, you know, slick black dress. It's all those things in restaurants. I did some time in, in the Michelin uh, restaurants. I did some time. I felt like time. Um, <laughs> and uh, 
you know, Swanee is a term we used to say, like, you know, make it Swanee was like to make it nice, to make it the best, to go out of your own way, to really do something. And so um, in this sense, that seemed like a great alter ego um, and kind of plays on that that restaurant history side of me. Um, it's it's I've tried everything I can, though, because like with like uh, emojis of a swan and yay. But, you know, it, it, it's fun. I mean, you try to explain it to people like it's is this sojourn and soigne and it's this mm-hmm. word and so I, I've done I've done that to myself for sure. Or is it sanye? Right. Um, but it's fun. Yeah. It and it it uh it does sound a little posh too, which is you know that's fun too. Well, I think like vocal or like I love stuff that um, has a deeper meaning if you look a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Right? Absolutely. But on the surface, you're having a good time. And, and that's how we should be approaching wine too, right? Like, hey, this is, I mean, so we think about marketing and marketing, you know, Santa Cruz Mountains, and we're going to tell another story here. It's so deep. It's so complex. It's so rich. No one's heard these stories. And when we do these educational uh, events, because I've been teaching for the mountains since 2018, and I do a series of seminars, and we do Zoom tastings with press and all kinds of things to try to raise awareness of the Appalachian, those events um, are like the first glass of wine where if you have a glass of wine, you probably are going to understand what the bottle's like. You know, at least you get an idea, right? <laughs> Having the whole bottle and watching it evolve and watching it change is to have a richer, more complete understanding. But how do we get that snapshot? And you know, that's kind of what we're trying to do with those events. Sure. Well, we have another, uh, what looks to be a great a glass of this cab. So this is from the Bates Ranch. Mm-hmm. So we're drinking 2018 uh Vocal Vineyards, Bates Ranch, Cabernet Sauvignon. This wine is uh, composed of 65-year-old, own-rooted, dry-farmed, and head-trained, 100% Cabernet Sauvignon. There's no new barrel here. Barrel is uh, can be seasoning. You know, in Chardonnay, barrel gives that, like, you know, it's like salt and pepper, right? You, you add more complex, you add, you enhance things. Cabernet, if you're not being an asshole has a lot of natural spice to it. And this is a site that is some of the oldest vines of Cabernet we know of producing in California. You know, you've not heard old vine Cabernet. Like everybody listening for a moment, old vine Cabernet? Yeah, no, no old, vine's old, in. Vine's in, yeah. old vine Zin. Old vine Syrah, Via Vigne Pinot Noir or Chardonnay, right? But never Cabernet. And Cabernet, around 20 years, gets replanted because it has all kinds of issues and and its yield drops precipitously, and farming is the hardest gamble in the world, so people replant. The average age of a vine in Napa Valley is probably 20 to 25 years at best. So, again, this being independent and, you know, all these families owning these vineyards, you find things like this. And so, uh, first of all, this is a very pure wine. Pure wine. It's, it's going to be 13.9 in alcohol. There's no new barrel Wait, wait, here. wait. That's really nine. Yeah. And we'll, Wow. Perfectly ripe. There's good tannin. It's, it's delicious. Um, the I, you know, why not hang it longer? Why not put a bunch of new wood on it? Because it would taste like everything else, and you would miss what is very, very special about this. Um, Ian introduced me to this block in 2015, and the conversation was because this is dry farmed, unrooted. So like we're at the end of like the worst drought in history before this drought we're in, and so these vines are stressed and practically dying. Um, this is. For me, as a sixth-generation Californian, really special to participate in this wine. This wine was made in Ian's facility, and it's gorgeous. Um, 
There's a lot of pencilette and graphite. There's a lot of uh, blue fruit. There's a pyrazinic compound that is, na that is native to Cabernet here. It's like a, a candied mint. It's really pretty. Um, the Bates Ranch sits on the backside of Mount Madonna. It's 40 miles south of where we sit today, mm -hmm. where we, we're, nor we're close to the real famous Cabernet vineyards of Montebello, of Fogarty, of Mount Eden. Um, this vineyard is 40 miles south of that. So, And that's closer to Gilroy for folks who know that region of California. Absolutely. Hecker Pass. And uh, beautiful drive. Um, so the reason to distinguish the difference here is the 2,000-foot elevation Cabernet sites over the Santa Clara Valley, 100-degree days in the summer. They don't cool off until the fog comes in. They have a really sharp diurnal. This has none of that. This is five miles of the ocean. This is not going to be as hot as those sites. It doesn't have that diurnal. It's kind of always cool and sunny. Yeah. This does not taste at all like a super overripe Cabernet. Yeah, it's all. really elegant, really beautiful. Mm -hmm. and it's, it's refreshing. It's very fresh, actually. Very fresh. Yeah, and this is one of those points where we'll talk about how Cabernet came to the mountain range in a moment, but this is one of those points where you have to like really not care what people think. Hmm. So if you're out there, is why I admire people like Jeffrey Patterson, you know, holding the banner of Pinot Noir before for decades before anybody cared um the to produce a wine like that that's so pure to its site and pure to what it is you're going to need to find champions it's not going to be for everybody um and that's fine and you have to and when you when you know it when it's this good you have to double down on not caring if somebody doesn't like it not to be offensive but i will tell our distributors if someone doesn't like it fine find somebody who does it's only getting better in the bottle um but specifically, this is intended to not have those things so that you can really showcase what's really special. We've never tasted old California Cabernet in this like pure way. How it's old super are these fun. vines? Average age is 65. Okay. Yeah. So, wow. So this vineyard is planted. Wow. Here's a fun one. <laughs> this vineyard is planted before the use of wire trellising is widespread in the world. That, have, that wire trellising is invented by Dr. Linz Moser. That's what the Austrian winery is named for in the late 50s in Austria. And it really isn't prevalent in California until really the 70s. And so this is a vineyard that they all look like little trees, like an orchard. Um, very, very old school thing. Uh, that's something we kind of take for granted, but people like to hear, you know, this is before that moment. All those vineyards you see with wire trellising out mm -hmm. there, modern today, this vineyard was planted before that was yeah. ever used. So they're, they're gnarly. They kind of look like chandeliers, Chand mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, tiny clusters, gorgeous fruit off the vine, really pretty. Um, oh, I love so that. Fun. It's, really it's a really great wine. Thank you. So Cabernet Sauvignon comes to, the Mount, comes to Santa Cruz Mountains because of Emmett Rickford. And Emmett Rickford had a winery called the Woodside Vineyards, and he produced a wine called the Cuesta. And Cuesta was a big deal. You know, phylloxera in Europe eradicated wine and you probably have heard of like how absinthe became a big deal right you think of like latus latrex all his paintings are are a shade of green right because everybody's just high on absinthe tequila <laughs> became a really big deal in mm -hmm. the paris expeditions and santa cruz mountains wines did too and so emmett rickford in the 1890s and remember panama doesn't open until like 1915 right so Emmett Rickford goes by boat to Chateau Margaux, collects pre-phylloxera budwood, and plants his vineyard in Woodside. That cutting becomes Mount Eden and still exists in the mountain range today. 
I'm not saying we know that's what this is, but it's another one of the stories I can see your eyes. You've never heard. I've never heard this. Because no one, you, you know, we've heard all of the Sonoma stories to death and Napa stories <laughs> Napa. to death because there's marketing and dollars behind it. But in order to tell these stories, you have to have crazy people like me that are like, yeah, I want to do this for everybody. Yeah, right? yeah. And this is one of those things that I think people find funny is like, why aren't you out there every day spending every moment promoting your own wine? Well, I believe in community. I believe in being part of a region. I believe in being part of a chapter of this place's history mm-hmm. and want to try to get people's attention for it. Um, so, yeah. I just think it's so interesting, all the different pieces of this. And I think about, you know, uh, so you live in the Monterey area and I, I like on the daily, I said, okay, now what piece of the job am I going to do today? Am I going to go to a vineyard? Am I going to be on the computer doing some of the marketing stuff or some of the business side of this, balancing the books? How do you decide on the daily work? Am I going to go do this interview with these two Marys? Yeah. A podcast? It's really hard. Yeah. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have a lot of balls in the things, air. Yeah, time. things are going... It's not a woodpecker. It's <laughs> things are going really well. Um, and I... I'm always busy. I mean, I was in, I, I got back last night at 2 a.m. from a trip to Southern California. Um, wow. You know, it, it, we're picking Cabernet tomorrow. And if all goes well there, I'm going to be back in the market on Thursday. You know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you got to, people, if you want to have balance in your life, then just take a job. But if you're excited about doing something for yourself, it's going to never be, you know, working for yourself all the time is yours, but you never have spare time. You never have, like, there's nothing to do here. There's plenty to do. There's always something. There's always on. something. There's always something you need to get to. Um, and, you know, because of that, and probably because of, you know, spending so so many times in the extraordinarily chaotic environment of restaurants, um, you know, Harvest, I think, is great. Oh, something went wrong. Let's solve the problem. Somebody didn't show up. Cool. Let's solve the problem. Like, cause you're, that's kind of beat into you, right? Like, um, I was talking to a gentleman who's cellar master at Costa Brown used to be a, a Michelin star chef in Germany. And he's like, harvest. That was every day. I'm like, yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that tension level but, that, but, yeah. there, but you know what I also realized? Think, cause I've said that for years. I realized that there's a lot of performance anxiety about you get one chance to do it. And I think about that too. You know, these, these days, if we're independent like this, Renting trucks, getting crews, it's very difficult. There's there's pressure. Legal cannabis is another agricultural pressure that takes those resources away. Um, and, you know, you, you want to try to get it right. And in these years where we have this incredibly variable and problematic climate, you know, trying to get right is is, is hard. It's very hard. So to your, I know I didn't answer your question. I, I, I uh, uh, Try to plan my schedule out months in advance, you know, and then you go where the opportunity is and try to do the best you can with every opportunity and, you know, just get up in the morning and lean forward, I guess. <laughs> so true. Well, Ted, because you're such a busy person, we are so grateful that you've taken this time to come talk to the two Marys and beyond Sip you. Sip Hooray. Um, where can our listeners find you, your wines and your music? Yeah, so um, you can follow on Instagram is probably the best thing right now, um, and and you know I'm I'm 42, so uh, my Instagram is not clever. It's just my name at Ted Glennon, and then at and that's G L E G L E N N O N, 
And then uh, for the music at DJ Swanye. But if you go to Ted Glennon, which is the easiest thing to find, I've got that linked in my bio. And uh, post all the flyers of everything we're doing that's not a private event um, on the DJ Swanye thing. Um, I'm kind of, I'm almost always about two to three times a month at the Dudley Market in Venice Beach. which is an extraordinary little place where the whole menu's line caught and it's just unreal. And they have a $15,000 hi-fi in there. It's all vinyl and Oh my God, is that the perfect example of everything we're talking about? Um, and you should come. Uh, and then Sounds oftentimes awesome. in the Bay Area as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, follow along and, and there's a lot of really exciting things coming. Uh, just to tease that in the next 12 months, there will be uh, sort of a, a relaunch, a revision. A, there's, there's, there's something coming. And I've learned because of vocal. So, Vocal, when you'd say the word vocal to people before they saw the bottle, couldn't even hear you. Couldn't, it was such a common word, nobody even hear what you're doing. What's the brand called? It's called vocal. What? I don't understand. And so I learned through that situation of spending years trying to tell people what we were doing before I could show it, that not to do it until you can show it to somebody. But this next year is a very exciting time. Um, we're in our 10th harvest this year, which is crazy. And everything's about to just break loose and so i can't wait to see everyone out there i can't wait to see what you think of what's what's about to happen um and the fun part about that is that's a lot of like 2019 wines so wine's hilarious because i've been cooking something for like four years and i'm about to show you <laughs> you know but to me it's like oh i'm so tired of it. it's it's hilarious that and wine we're traveling backwards and forwards in time all the time it's so true that's a really good point yeah people forget that but it's true you've been working on this you've been cooking this up for a while well, it's you know, wine is time travel right mm-hmm. and it's fun to think about like what was happening but it's also wild where this heat wave this year in two years when we're selling these wines don't remember it that's true oh you know? right. god willing yeah. it's over um <laughs> ted Thank you so much. Yes. Cheers to you. Thank you for the way that you, your passion uh, for the Santa Cruz Mountains and the way that you talk about it and, and promote it and what you do. I think that is so cool. Continued success with Vocal Vineyards and DJ Soigne. And um, just good luck with your family. And thank you so much for sharing all of this with us. Thank you so much. Please come visit. It's uh, yes. one of the most beautiful places on earth. And if you haven't been, it's extraordinary. And it's definitely family friendly. I think it's something to... To point out, a lot of the wine regions are not as much anymore, and I feel like our greater region, Santa Cruz specifically, but also the greater Monterey regions, is very welcome to families, and I think that's something that's important to point out. So low-key, so welcoming, you're right. And I know what I'll be listening to next time I open a bottle of wine to share (laughs) with my husband or friends. So thank you for, for just bringing all that richness in the glass and in the audio world to us. Thank you so much for having me. Right. Well, cheers to you. Cheers, Ted. Sip, sip, hooray. Sip, sip, hooray. Well, that's going to do it for our podcast today. Thank you for listening to Sip, Sip, Hooray. We hope if you enjoyed the show that you'll share it with your friends, your family. Spread the word about the Sip, Sip, Hooray podcast. And you can do that by, one, going to our website, sipsipparaypodcast.com. There you'll see all the different podcast platforms we are on. And go to your favorite one and be sure to subscribe so you don't miss an episode when it drops. And be sure to follow us on social media. We are at Podcast on Instagram and Facebook and Sipsipparay, the number one, on Twitter. Be sure to tag us with 
any photos, if you've tried any of these wines or been to the wineries, we'd love to hear from you. That's right. We want you in the Sip Sip Hooray family, so do stay in touch with us. And that's going to do it for us, Mary. It's time to go out and eat, drink, and be merry. Absolutely. We're going to pop the cork and raise a glass. <laughs> Cheers to you, Mary Orland. Cheers to you, Mary Babbitt. Sip Sip Hooray. Sip Sip Hooray. Sip, sip, hooray.